And I invite the rest of you to turn to Acts chapter 11, please. Acts chapter 11. As we follow the continuing growth of the church in the book of Acts from Jerusalem outward, we find that the gospel has taken root among the Gentiles in the city of Antioch in Syria. Barnabas had traveled to Antioch at the request of the Jerusalem church. And as we saw last week, he convinced Paul to leave his hometown of Tarsus to help him build up the new believers that were there. Over the course of about a year, Paul and Barnabas saw the church grow dramatically. So much so that the unbelievers in Antioch began to identify them as ones belonging to Christ or Christians. But how exactly did they demonstrate that they belonged to Christ? Before his death, Jesus had told his disciples how they could show others that they were his followers. According to John 13.35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples. Can anybody finish that? Anybody? Pop quiz. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And who better for these Gentile Christians in Antioch to serve in love than the same Jewish Christians who had been critical of any gospel effort to the Gentiles. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 11. We're just going to read four verses this morning. It's a very brief passage, beginning in verse 27. Luke says, And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together this morning as we look into the Word of God. Dear Lord, we come this morning and we are going to begin looking here at just a few verses in Scripture this morning. But we need your help. We need you to come to... to work in our hearts with the the power of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to help us to understand the truth, uh, to see more than just mere words on a page, but to understand the spiritual truths that you want us to, to learn this morning. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to respond to the truth in submission and obedience, that we might please you this morning. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for what you are about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. In these few verses in Acts 11, we have an interesting account of a very unique situation. I actually think there's three elements of this brief passage that are unique and fascinating. The first thing is that we have one of the very few passages describing the New Testament gift of prophecy and practice in the church. Um, you'll notice there in verse 27 and 28 that it describes the ministry of a man named Agabus, who's described as a prophet. There really are only a handful of places in the New Testament where this gift of prophecy is described or talked about in any way. And so that makes this special. I don't want to spend a great deal of time focusing on the role of Agabus here. We will see him again uh, in Acts chapter uh, 20, I believe it is. But... 
it is worth mentioning in the Old Testament, the test of whether a prophet was from God was the accuracy of his prediction. By the way, I I just always find this fascinating. God's standard for accurate prophecy is 100% perfection. In other words, if you look in the Old Testament, 99.9% is no better than 0% accuracy when it comes to a prophet. If God was speaking through him, we could expect 100% accuracy. And God said that was the test. That was the way for us to distinguish between a true prophet of God and a false prophet. The true prophet, whatever he said, would come to pass exactly as he said. And the perfect standard of accuracy was the deciding factor. Of course, in the Old Testament, if you decided to stand up and declare that you had received a message from God and you spoke a prophecy and it didn't come true, you were to be put to death. So you could imagine that there weren't a whole lot of people, at least early on, uh, going around declaring that they had received a message from God when they had not heard anything from God. The truth is, some people believe and this is really not the topic for the message today, but some people believe that in the New Testament there's a different class of prophets, that somehow 100% accuracy in speaking from God was not the standard anymore. And I would just suggest to you that if someone says that, they have an awful lot to prove, because it's their burden to prove that God somehow changed his standard. I don't think so. I think we could apply the same standard. In fact, If we apply that same standard to Agabus, in this passage, what do we find? We find that Agabus predicted that a famine would come, and Luke says a famine did indeed come. So guess what? There you go. His prophecy was verified. He spoke by the Spirit's power. Luke tells us that, that he showed by the Spirit. And so Agabus was a prophet from God. He spoke by the Spirit, and then his prophecy came true. So that's interesting. We have an example of a man. And by the way, I I believe, although it doesn't say it specifically in this passage, but I believe that when it says there in verse 28 that he stood up and showed by the Spirit, that what it's talking about is it's talking about in a church service. He stood up in front of the church, and he declared this prophecy. Again, I know it's, it's not spelled out in the verse there, but I think that's what it's saying. This was in the church, in presumably a church service, maybe similar to this one in some way. And here Agabus prophesied. Fascinating. Unique. Very, very rare in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that we would see something of this nature. But, but there's other things. The second thing I think that's really noteworthy is the famine that Agabus predicted. Because this famine is a very identifiable historical event. We have actually a fair amount of historical records of what went on during uh, much of the history of the Roman Empire, including this time period. We have several Roman historians who wrote histories of this time period, as well as we have a very, probably the most notable historian is is a Jewish historian named Josephus. 
who wrote a record of the of a number of events that took place during this time period. He also fills in many details concerning things that happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And uh, they all refer to famines that occur in the Roman Empire during this time period. Luke tells us, and I think this is interesting because Luke, in giving us the details he gives us here, helps to verify his own account, right? He helps to prove once again that he is an accurate historian. Now, we're not surprised by that because we believe that Luke was writing with the, uh, with the carrying along of the Holy Spirit as he was inspired by God to write. So we would expect accurate history. But certainly, it's helpful to us to be able to point to references that Luke makes that we can then verify and say, absolutely, this happened when he said it happened. These were the people involved. This was the political situation. And Luke makes a number of references to, throughout his, his, his book, to different political and historical events, some of which we can identify very clearly. And this is one of those things. Apparently, uh, we, we understand that Claudius Caesar, Luke mentions here in verse 28, was, he was the emperor in Rome between 41 and 54 A.D. And so that Luke obviously gives us that much space here. We know that this occurred sometime between 41 and 54. And historians tell us, uh, again, the, the, and when I say historians, I'm referring to ancient historians okay, who are writing very near the time of these events, tell us that there were four uh, at least four specific famines that occurred in the Roman Empire during Claudius's reign. There were a number of years in which they had bad crops, and there were there were more than one drought that came through different different areas of the Roman Empire during this time. And so it's interesting because Luke gives us these details. He talks about a famine, and he says that it happened during the days of Claudius Caesar. And if we look at the cross-reference some of the historical records, we find that this, this narrows down our search to between 44 and 48 A.D. There was a famine or drought apparently that hit Egypt, and the resulting shortages had a significant impact on Judea and Jerusalem, and, and on the rest of the Roman Empire as well, but specifically on those areas sometime between 44 and 48 A.D., which is exactly the time period that we're looking at with Paul and Barnabas there in Antioch. And so everything fits. So again, not that this is surprising or revolutionary, but when Luke writes history, it's accurate. It's good for us to know. And so that's another interesting point. And I think the third thing that I think is really fascinating in this passage is that we see the power of God's grace to change these Gentiles' hearts and forge a bond of love and generosity between them and the Jews in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church had sent Barnabas to encourage these young Gentile believers in Antioch. And now more than a year has passed at least. We don't know exactly how long that Barnabas was there. But some time has passed. And it's fitting now that those Gentile Christians who were encouraged and ministered to by the church in Jerusalem through the ministry of Barnabas, that they would in turn support the struggling Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in their time of need. And there really are two, I think, very natural questions that arise when we consider 
the ministry that the church in Antioch had to the church in Jerusalem. And the questions are this, very simple. Uh, Hopefully you don't find them too profound. They're pretty simple questions. Why did they give and how did they give? I'd like to look at these two questions this morning because I think that the answers to these two questions will give us clear direction with respect to, one, how we show love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And and two, how we view our personal finances and giving. So let's look. Let's ask these two questions, and then let's see what answers we can find in this text for these two questions. The first question is, why did they give? So look with me again at verse 27 and 28. Notice what it says. In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So why did they give? Well, the simple answer to the question of why did they give is because there was a need. They gave because there was a need. I know, this is deep and profound here. Okay, Revolutionary. This will knock your socks off. They gave because there was a need. It's really all the answer that we're going to get. We've already noted here that Agabus was prophesying by the Spirit that there would be a great famine in the land. And so there could be little doubt that his prophecy would come true. But think about this for just a minute. If Agabus is right, and there's going to be a famine throughout all the world, then wouldn't the church in Antioch suffer from it? A lot of commentators suggest that when Luke says all the world, he's really referring to the Roman Empire. Because that was kind of the way that they talked about the empire. You know, Rome was all the world. Everything outside of Rome was, you know, not the civilized world. That's kind of, I think, maybe what's in view here. But if it really is referring to all the world, even if it's just the Roman Empire, Antioch is a part of that. Wouldn't these Christians in Antioch be expecting that they would suffer from this famine? Maybe they would have been better off hoarding for themselves to make sure, you know, that they could be taken care of when the famine hit. Maybe that would be a more natural reaction. the, The prophet comes in and he says, hey, guess what? All of the United States of America is going to suffer. We've had a bad year for crops last year, and parts of the, you know the, the, the corn crop and other places were bad. And, and this year it's going to get worse. And it's just going to be we're going to have a drought, we're going to have famine, we're going to have shortages. It's going to be awful. And so what do we do? Well, let's 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 collect stuff. Let's get stuff together so that when we start to run short, we have supplies here, right, for one another, so we can help each other out as as things get tough. And that would seem to be an admirable thing. We'll help our fellow man right here within these four walls. Right? But that's not what they did. I'm, to me, it would seem natural for them to think of themselves. Knowing that they were going to suffer from this famine. But rather than simply focus on themselves and their own potential need, we find that they became concerned with the church in Jerusalem. Now, we do need to consider for a moment what things were like in Jerusalem at this time. Because if we think back, the last time that we were in Jerusalem with the church, you've got to go back to, well, like Acts chapter 2 when the church started. In Acts chapter 2, verses 45 and 46, we find that 
That there was no one in the church that had any needs, we're told. Because any time that someone had a need, someone else would sell some property and give money to meet the need. So there were no poor people in the church in Jerusalem. Everyone had their needs met. And then you go to Acts chapter 4, verses 31 to 35, and we also find this was continuing. The people in the church who had property, who were wealthy, and Barnabas is identified as one of them, who had land, sold the land, and gave the proceeds to the church to be able to help meet the needs of anyone who would have a need. And so we find the last time that we left the church in Jerusalem, they were doing pretty well. No one suffered any need because the wealthy believers there helped support those who were destitute and took care of one another. But that goes back a ways. In fact, that goes back to when they were able to meet publicly without fear, without persecution. When they met freely and daily in the temple every day. A lot, has, a lot has changed in the years that have passed since we last left the church in Jerusalem. Really, the last time that we looked at the church in Jerusalem was when Stephen was brought up before the council and was murdered. Was martyred for his faith. And when Stephen was killed, we're told that after Stephen was killed, a great persecution rose up. Who was the head? Who was heading up that persecution? Okay, Saul, otherwise known as Paul. He was heading up the persecution. And then we followed as Luke began to talk about Saul and his conversion as God met him. Luke talked about Philip and his ministry in Samaria and then down to the Ethiopian eunuch and others. And we looked at the the, the mission that Peter had to Cornelius, and all these other things that have taken place. And so as the years have gone by and the persecution that arose in Jerusalem, it caused people to scatter from Jerusalem. And the church there, no doubt, was affected dramatically. Many believers were driven from Judea. And I think it's safe to say, and I think that that we can support this from Scripture, but that the overall prosperity of the church in Jerusalem had declined dramatically. And the church there was struggling. There's no indication here that the members of the church in Jerusalem were unwilling to support one another. But it seems far more likely they were simply unable to. And so as we talk about this question, why did they give? They gave because there was a need. They gave because as they heard about the church in Jerusalem, and as they knew about the church in Jerusalem, they they knew But the people there didn't have the means to support themselves and to take care of one another. And they would need help. There's an interesting side note, by the way, just to think about this for a minute. It may have been Saul's persecution in Judea Judea, that drove many of the wealthier church members to scatter and leave Jerusalem, weakening the Jerusalem church's ability to provide for itself. And so we might look at that and say, boy, what a tragic thing. Had, had Paul's persecution not arisen, the church there in Jerusalem could have sustained itself even through a time of drought. They would have had the resources most likely to do so. But then think about this, that Paul's persecution is what drove the believers to leave Jerusalem and scatter, some of them scattering to the north and ending up in Antioch, where they began to preach the gospel 
to some of the Gentiles, who then formed a church that was then able to pool some resources to send back to Jerusalem to support and minister to the church in a time of need. So think about it. Even before, many years before, the Jerusalem church had a need it couldn't meet. God had been preparing for the meeting of that need. And how did he do it? Persecution. He used Saul's persecution to, to take some of those Christians and move them out of Jerusalem so that he could start another church in Antioch, which then could, in turn, support and help the Christians in Jerusalem when they faced famine and difficulty. I just think it's fascinating. I don't know that any of the people in Jerusalem who were suffering in the famine would have necessarily recognized all of that. But I think it's fascinating to think about that. Seems like the long way around to me, but that's the way God chose to do it. In his providential care, he paved the way for the protection and provision of the church in Jerusalem by removing from the church in Jerusalem many of the people who had supported the church. Taking them somewhere else where they could then from a distance support the church in a more effective way. And give us a great demonstration of the love of Christ. Either way, as we consider this, it's, important, it's an important principle for us to emulate. The believers in Antioch became aware of a need in Jerusalem and they acted to meet the need. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through Agabus who had revealed the need to them. But I don't know if you noticed this. All it says here is that, that, that Agabus prophesied by the Spirit that there was going to be a famine. But you notice there's no reference here to any instructions that the Spirit gave to this church about what they were to do. I was reading this week, and I came across Warren Wearsby's statement about this passage. And he said this, and I thought this was really insightful. He said, the purpose of true prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Although I've got to be honest with you, I think that there's a lot of people who are really curious about the future. And it sparks an interest in biblical prophecy that's not necessarily healthy. Because they're not looking at it from the right perspective. They're simply wanting, out of curiosity, to know what God is going to do. But that's not the reason, and I think Warren Wiersbe hits it right on the head here, that's not the reason that God gives prophecy, is to satisfy our curiosity. What is it for? He said it is, it is to stir up our hearts to do the will of God. So you want to know, why does the Bible include the book of Revelation? Why does it include the prophets? Why does it include all of these prophecies? Why? To stir up our hearts to be obedient to the will of God. Now, I, I can almost imagine that you might be asking, I can't hear you because nobody said anything, but I can almost imagine, you might be asking yourself, if the Holy Spirit didn't tell them what to do, then how did they know what God's will was? If prophecy is given to spur us, uh, to provoke us to obey the will of God, don't we have to know what the will of God is? And why didn't the Spirit reveal His will to them? When He had Agabus tell them about the famine, why didn't the Spirit say, now here's what you do. You know, here's our, our, our five-step plan to, to uh, you know, minister to the church in Jerusalem, or whatever. Why didn't He do that? 
how were they supposed to know what God's will was? Well, I think that's a good question. But I think the answer to that question is very simple. We need to understand that biblical wisdom can guide us where God himself does not. Let me say that again, and then don't, don't get confused and, and get all upset if you think you disagree with this, but listen. The biblical wisdom can guide us where God himself does not. You do realize there are things that the scripture does not tell us, right? It didn't tell you what, uh, what color socks to put on today. You don't find the instruction here anywhere for that. It didn't tell you, uh, you know, what to have for breakfast. There's no indication of any of those things. There's a lot of things this doesn't tell us. Uh, Frankly, it didn't tell you which car to buy the last time you went car shopping. Uh, Peggy's not here, but it didn't tell you what, it doesn't tell you what uh, a crock pot to buy either. So you can ask her about that. Scripture, there's a lot of things it doesn't tell us. So what do we do with these things that that God's Word doesn't tell us? How should they know? I mean, here's these believers in the church in Antioch, and they get revealed to them a truth that there is a famine about to happen that's going to come, but no direction then about what they are to do about that. How did they know what to do? What do we do when God's Word doesn't give us a detailed step-by-step instruction for every last thing in our life? And by the way, there's an awful lot in our life that God's Word does not give us specific instruction. Do this, don't do that. There's a lot of things that we have to make choices about every day that God's Word doesn't cover in detail. So how did they know? They exercised biblical wisdom. That's what we need to do. Because biblical wisdom guides us when God doesn't. Okay, and I'm not saying that God is ignoring us. I'm saying that God has not given specific direction in some of these areas. But biblical wisdom guides us. Okay. In that way, God is guiding us. But he's guiding us through the application of, of his truth. Biblical wisdom. Let me say it this way. We should not wait to hear the Spirit speak to us when we see a need that we can meet. We shouldn't wait to hear the Spirit speak to us when we see a need that we can meet. We should be moved with compassion and move our hands to meet the need. The response of the Christians in Antioch was based on what God had already revealed in his word. They didn't need God to tell them. They didn't need the Holy Spirit to give them specific instructions about what to do about this famine. They already had enough truth. They simply needed to apply it now. How do I know? Well, Matthew 25. Keep your finger in Acts 11 and just turn over to Matthew 25 with me real quick. Jesus gave plenty of instruction regarding this issue. If you want to know, you're sitting here saying, boy, you know, my neighbor or my friend or a good family or whatever that's struggling, that has a need, and I can meet the need, but I just don't know if it's God's will for me to do that. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus said. 
Matthew 25 and verse 34. Jesus said this, then, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is a really simple principle. Any time that we care for someone else in need, we are doing God's will. Whether we receive in specific instruction to do so or not. You don't need the Holy Spirit to tell you to help your neighbor. To provide for someone in need that you know. You don't need the Holy Spirit to give you specific leading and direction to know, oh, should I or should I not meet a need that I see? Jesus says, any time, any time that you have met the need of someone else, you have done it to me. You are doing the will of God. These Christians in Antioch didn't need the Spirit to say, okay, there's a famine coming, now here's what you do. All they needed to know was there was a need. And when they saw that, their hearts were moved with compassion, and they moved their hands to meet the need. And that's what we should do. That's applying biblical wisdom to an area in which God did not give them specific instruction. He would already given them the principle of ministering to those in need. They simply needed to apply that principle to their situation. I think that's important. Why did they give? Because there was a need. They saw the need. They applied biblical wisdom. And they moved to meet the need. But how did they do it? I can already see I've taken up too much time on the first first question because I've got a lot more on the second one. Let's keep going. How did they do it? What does this passage tell us about how they met the need? Well, let's look at verse 29. Back in Acts chapter 11. Then, after they heard about this famine, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. There are several answers to the question, how did they give? Four specifically, I think we're going to look at. In verses 29 and 30. The first answer is this. They gave as individuals. They gave as individuals. Each disciple gave at whatever rate he could afford. That's what we're told here. They didn't give from the collective coffers of the church. Nor is there any indication that the church made any official determination to give. Each one simply responded to the need in whatever way he could. And maybe you're wondering why they didn't just vote to send a check from the surplus in their church bank account. (laughs) That would be easy, wouldn't it? I mean, why go to the trouble of raising funds over a period of time? As each Christian gave what they could afford on a regular basis. Why not just write a check? Certainly they must have had surplus in the bank. They're responsible 
church, taking care of their finances, not spending money willy-nilly on things. So they were good stewards. Certainly they could have afforded to just, just cut a check out of the church bank account and send a check to help out those Christians in Jerusalem. You understand I'm speaking kind of figuratively here. But I would say this. I think that we too often have fallen into the trap of spending money that does not belong to us on things which, on which we ought to spend our own money. I think it can be very tempting in a church to spend other people's money rather than our own. And frankly, like our United States Congress, we can very easily vote to take some of our collective abundance and give it to someone in need not realizing that the money we are giving does not belong to us. This is one of those situations where we as believers ought to act individually together rather than as a single entity. We ought to act individually together. It's not the same thing as acting as a single entity. Sacrificing from our personal wealth for the benefit of those in need because of the love of God which is in our hearts. I think Paul emphasizes this as well uh, in two other passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In both passages, Paul talks about the need for giving. And frankly, what we find is that while, while Paul and Barnabas here were involved in this instance of taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Later on, Paul does it again. And he goes to all of the Gentile churches that he had started, and he he organizes a collection from them to meet the needs of the poor in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem continued to be very poor. We know that throughout the New Testament. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you... Lay something aside. He's not talking about tithing here or giving to the church. He's talking about this church's collection for the church at Jerusalem. Giving to meet a specific need. Okay? He says, each one of you should lay something aside. Storing up as he may prosper that there be no collections when I come. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, again referring to this collection of funds... In verse 7, he says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly of nor or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He says, Let each one give. Yes, they are giving together, but each one is called to give as an individual. According to these verses in the books of First and Second Corinthians, I think Paul teaches us that giving is to be done on an individual basis, cheerfully, according to the determination of our hearts. The second answer to this question of how do they give is also found there in verse 29. They gave according to their ability. 
We're told there that each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief. The word ability there is euporeto. It refers to their financial status. It literally means having plenty. Each one, as he prospered, as he had plenty, gave. According to how much he prospered. As the believers in Antioch enjoyed abundance, they could give of their abundance. As we enjoy abundance, we ought to give of our abundance. This is, by the way, this is not to say that the Christians in Antioch were all rich. But this verse suggests that they gave as often as they had anything above and beyond the absolute essentials. And so that any time they had more than they needed, they gave. Determined by how much more they had than what they needed. You see, we often confuse ability with desire. And we think, you know, if, if only I had more, then I would give more. But in reality, we nearly always have more than we need. The problem is we desire more than we have. This is what Paul means, I believe, when he says in 1 Timothy 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. When was the last time that you wondered about if you were going to have food to eat or clothing to wear? Not usually an issue for us. It's not usually an issue of will I have clothes to wear. It's, well, I'm just not sure I really like anything in my closet today. Okay. You know, I mean, you, you know, if you're like me, and my wife kind of kids me because I, I, I do like to, I, say I'm picky about how I dress isn't really true, but, but, you know, Sunday mornings I'm in there trying to, you know, find a suit and a tie and a shirt and trying to coordinate somehow, make it actually look halfway decent. And I'll try on, you know, five different ties. And it just drives her crazy because she'll sit there and laugh at me, you know, because I'm trying, oh, I put this tie on and I take it. Well, what was wrong with that one? I just don't like it. I'll put on a different one, you know. Yeah, having clothes to wear is not usually the issue, right? Having food to eat. You know, you can go to your cupboard, you open your cupboard up and say, oh, there's nothing to eat in this house. And the, the, the cupboard is stocked full. It's just you look at it and go, oh, boy, I don't, none of that looks good to me. No, there's nothing to eat now. Yeah, there's, okay, it's not an issue of not having anything to eat. And God has blessed abundantly. I've got three freezers at my house. And they're not all full, but they're all kind of full. They've all got stuff in them. More than I can eat, probably. Okay. They've got a refrigerator that's stuffed full. I don't know where we're gonna, you know, we don't know where we're going to put anything. We've got, we got a pantry that's full of stuff. Okay, we're halfway through the month, and you know, we're thinking maybe we've got to make another run to the store. We, gotta, we need something else, right? I mean, this is the truth. It's not about us not having enough. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, that's enough. Anything more is abundance. Is it wrong with having more? No. We should rejoice. We should enjoy it. Because God has given it to us. But we should also recognize what is enough 
And when we have abundance, and let me tell you, in this country, we have abundance. And see, later in that passage in 1 Timothy 6, this is what Paul tells Timothy, to tell those who are rich. And what's his definition of rich? Well, listen, if having food and clothing is enough, then anything more qualifies. This is what Paul says those who have abundance should do. He says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. If we would learn to be content with life's necessities, we would find that we already have the means to give sacrificially to meet the needs of others. There are two more principles of giving found in verse 30. Let's look at verse 30 and and we'll move through this to try and finish up today. Verse 30, here's what Luke says, that after they had determined to send each one according to his ability, relief, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. There's two other things here. The first thing is this, they gave at the earliest opportunity. There's no reference made to the time frame in which they give. I understand that. Luke assures us that they simply decided to do it, and then they did what they had intended to do, presumably without delay. And I think that's important. They determined to do it, and then they did it. How many times do we determine to do something, but then we don't follow through? They followed through. They didn't dilly-dally around. They got to it, and they got it done. But, you know... We're busy, very busy. We're often bombarded with more needs than we can possibly meet. Now, if you're like me, you get stuff in the mail all the time. Somebody always, you know, needs money for something, right? And many of those things are, frankly, very good and worthwhile things that we can support. And, and there are many different areas of need that we can be involved in meeting. But there's certainly more than we can meet. There's certainly, and we get bombarded sometimes. And I think because of that, it can be very easy for us just to put it off. Just to delay helping until either somebody else meets the need or the need becomes greater than we can possibly meet. And then we let ourselves off the hook by saying that we can't do anything about it because the problem is just too great. It's it's just too much. When if we had engaged the problem when we first saw the need... We could have had a hand in resolving it. Maybe taking care of ourselves. Maybe simply by demonstrating an example to others and leading others in meeting a need. I think we really ought to take Solomon's wise words to heart. Proverbs 3.27, he says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do it. When should we do good to those who have a need? When it is in the power of our hand to do it. That's the time frame. We see a need. We can meet the need. We act to meet the need. That's it. There shouldn't be a delay. Shouldn't be, but here's the problem. We're busy. And we can't, or we don't always plan for it. Let me offer you a tip. And I, this, is, I, this is not, this is just my personal opinion. And I'm not trying to, well, I'll just say it, okay? And I, please under, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not trying to hold myself up as a prime example of generosity and Uh, benevolence. But for a number of years now, my wife and I have tried to 
be prepared to give any time that we met, that we saw a need that we could meet. Okay. We always felt unprepared to give money to help others. We would find out about a need and we, we, we just wouldn't be ready to do anything about it. And then the time would pass and we'd forget or you know, somebody else would do something and it would just, we, we'd just go on. And so we decided that we were going to set aside every, uh, money every month as a part of a regular budget. And we would designate that money for ministry. And so we have in our budget a ministry, uh, whatever we call it, we just call it ministry money. You know, that's what we call it. And so I always ask my wife, hey, do we have any ministry money left this month? How much money have we got in the ministry account? And because we set this money aside, it's designated for ministry. It's money that's separate from our offerings that we give to the church, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and it's money that we can spend any time that we see someone in need. It's already budgeted. As far as our hearts are concerned, we've already given it away at the beginning of the month. So we're not attached to it at all. Because we determine when we set it aside that it's, just, it's already given away. It's gone. We just don't know who's going to get it yet. But it's gone in our minds. So then it just becomes a task during the month of finding someone with a need that we can use that money for. That may not work for you. I don't know. I'm not saying it's a perfect system. But I'm saying it works for us. Because there's so many times when we see a need and we're just completely unprepared to do anything about it. So we decided, you know what, we're going to build this into our budget. We're going to set aside money every month. And you know, when we have a missionary come through the church, or we have somebody come by that has a need, or we find out about something over here, or somebody over there, or whatever, we just, we've got it, we're ready to do it. We can just take the money and do it right away. The minute we find out there's a need, we can respond. Because we plan for it, we prepared for it. We're looking for the opportunity. I think that's important. That we respond as soon as possible to meet the need without delay. The last principle here in verse 30, I think, is that they gave with care and with wisdom. How do I know that? Well, it says that they sent the money to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It suggests to us that there was careful consideration given to who would deliver the gift to the Jerusalem church elders. And the church in Antioch entrusted the money to their own church leaders, men who had proven themselves worthy of the church members' trust and respect. And Paul and Barnabas had lived with them for a year or more by this time. And they were trustworthy ambassadors to carry out this important ministry. I know on one hand it was just money, and money is not really all that important. But Jesus did teach us that how we use our money reveals a great deal about our spiritual priorities and our values. The Christians wanted to make sure that their charity was received with the maximum benefit by the believers in Jerusalem. And so they had taken great pains to collect the money. It was also reasonable for them to take great care in its delivery. I think this principle is too often overlooked by the church. I think that the effective, or rather the ethical use and handling of money is essential to the testimony and effective outreach of the church. It shouldn't be entrusted to spiritual novices 
who may be tempted to follow unethical or even illegal practices for their own personal gain. Neither should anyone be trusted implicitly without proper financial oversight and accountability. That's why I think we see here that they chose both Barnabas and Paul. Because they could provide accountability for one another. And because they were men who were trusted, who had proven themselves over time to be worthy of this responsibility. That's interesting. We won't look at it tonight, today, but at a later time, Paul would reflect on the fact that both he and Barnabas refused to take any support from the churches that they planted. These were men who had as much right as any other church leader to be supported by the church. But Paul says, we, he says, Barnabas and I are the only ones who don't do this. We don't take support from the churches. What does that say? It says to me that these were men who valued the ministry and their testimony far more than they valued money. These were the right kinds of men for the church to entrust with this task. There was, there was care taken. This was not just willy-nilly grab a couple of men in the church, stick the money, and say, hey, go take this to the, to the church in Jerusalem. No, they thought through this. They did this intentionally with wisdom and care. The church sent the gift with two men who could keep each other accountable. They trusted these two men who went out of their way to be above reproach in the area of finances. I'd like to conclude this morning by pointing out that their giving was not done in a way to earn God's favor or to become righteous. What we see in verses 27 through 30 of Acts 11 is that the church in Antioch was simply reflecting the change that God's grace had produced in their lives. And to anyone here this morning who's trying to please God by giving to others or by helping others, I can say unequivocally that God is not impressed by your good deeds. In Titus 3, Paul says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. You can't give enough to make up for even one sin you've committed. And so it's quite impossible to make yourself pleasing to God, even if you were to give everything you have. Instead, Paul tells us in Romans 4, To him who does not work but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The question is today, will you trust in Christ's death and resurrection instead of trusting in your good works? These believers had, these people in Antioch, they had trusted Christ. They had been forgiven of their sins. And because of what God had done, instilling in them the love of Christ, they moved to meet the needs of the Christians in Jerusalem, many of whom had been hostile to the initial ministry of the gospel to Gentiles many of whom probably would have still had a hard time sitting down and eating dinner with, these, with the church in Antioch because of the cultural prejudice that was there. And yet the love of Christ was in their hearts because they knew Christ as their Savior. They weren't doing this to somehow please Him or make Him happy or earn their own righteousness. They were doing it because of what God had already done in this morning, for those of you who have already trusted in Christ, 
how can you demonstrate that you truly know and follow him? Will you do it by your generous love and care for those in need? Are you prepared to give each one out of your abundance as the need arises for the glory of God and the blessing of others? Will you exercise godly wisdom, investing in things with eternal benefit, as I know that many of you already do? Will you ask the Lord to help you see those in genuine need with eyes of compassion rather than cynicism? As we close this morning, I want to close with a prayer that was written by the Apostle Paul nearly 2,000 years ago, but it speaks to this. Let's pray together. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the need of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Well, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Thank you.